welcome to uh, $5 Buzz. My name is Pete Liska, and with you as always is George Kursar and Roger Mayer. And today we are doing a very special episode of $5 Buzz called, uh, well, I'm calling Get to Know the Buzzards. Um, we've done a handful of podcasts at this point, and uh, we thought maybe you'd want to know as the listener, who are these amazing people that are asking these riveting questions? Jesus. So we agreed to uh, to inter interview each other a little bit. And today we're going to start with Roger. Um, I call him our uh, master of all trades, jack of none. He is uh, he's a wonderful human being. Um, and Raj, I actually, you know, I want to start off with uh, laying a little bit of a compliment on you. Um, you know, I, when I think about you and I've known you for some time now, seven years, you are someone that can connect with uh, anybody from any walk of life and in a genuine way that I've that I've not seen, um, you know, very often in my past. And I, I it's ever fascinating. Uh, I've witnessed it firsthand. And I know a few stories from your past. I know that, you know, your dad drove a rig and, and drove across country. I know you've been across country as a kid with him. I know that you worked on the Amtrak train going across the country and you've traveled this, the United States uh, very extensively. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a link between your every man quality uh, for lack of a better term, but no, but gen your genuine empathy for people and your and your genuine understanding and, and interest in people, I would feel like came from that. But uh, I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit, if you if you'd be so kind. I, very simple. <clears throat> when you drive cross country, when you, I've lived all over the place. You know, I'm born and raised in Southern California. I've lived in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I came back to Southern California to finish high school. Then I moved to San Francisco in my early twenties the ragtag group of people, then moved to Brooklyn, New York, then moved to Chicago, then moved back to Brooklyn, then moved back to Los Angeles. And I've lived all over Los Angeles from South Central to, you know, Van Nuys to the Venice Beach, West Covina. Yeah, you know, I've been all over this place. Not Watch many me. people, I will say, not many people have major city living experience as you do. I mean, some people do time in New York or some people do time in Chicago and maybe another city, but you've really hit them all for extensive per periods of time. Um, and, uh, you know, I also know that you pride yourself on, a, on kind of a punk rock attitude and, and everything, but I also, but I do know you're a big softy at heart and, and I can prove it because you sent my, my wife for her birthday, a joy division uh, album, and you sent me a box of chocolates. And I thought that was very <laughs> sweet as well. But, um, uh, you know, other, she's, I don't have much she's more, more than punk rock than you. <laughs> she is. She for sure is. But uh, George, what do you say, man? Yeah. Uh, Roger, I see here you're billed as a pirate, a producer, a bruiser and a bleeder and a lover of all things jam band. So what I want to know, is what is your favorite band of that genre? <laughs> well, if I have to go jam bands, you know, uh, you have to go with the obvious choice, which is Sonic Youth, you know. <laughs> that yes. was uh, my attempt at humor. It wasn't very well received, I can tell, Roger. Um, <laughs> I know that you spent a lot of your life in uh, California, but uh, I was curious about your initial um, stay in Brooklyn. I think that was in the mid-90s. Can you just give myself and some of the listeners what drew you to New York? You know, I know that... Um, your interest has always been in film. You've worked in film. What was going on in New York in the film industry at that time? And what was it like? I was not in the film industry at that time. You weren't. Okay. I was absolutely, you got to remember my early twenties throughout my twenties until about my early thirties, you know, I pretty much fucked around as often as possible. I uh, went for, I've had blue collar jobs to white collar jobs back and forth. I painted houses I also was an insurance claims adjuster. I did uh, uh, payroll for employees at ADP and I've worked the railroad. You know, I've, I've had just about every kind of job you can imagine. I was an apartment manager and in New York, uh, but my buddy David Holman and I were just sick of San Francisco because it was so small after a while. I couldn't go anywhere without running into five people I knew. I couldn't, small, it's a 49 square mile city. So David and I, just on a whim, I'd never even had been to New York, not once in my life. <laughs> Saved up a bunch of money, 
drove all the way out there, you know, we hit a couple spots here and there, drove across the George Washington Bridge and moved to New York. <laughs> what was that? Was that 93, 94? About 94, 95, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. And that's when and um, we drove all over New York. What's that? I was going to say that's kind of <clears throat> the point in time when uh, Rudolph Giuliani had taken power. He uh, had decided he was going to stamp out the mafia. He was going to take three card Monty off the street. There was going to be no more uh, porno and adult entertainment uh, right in uh, midtown manhattan what do you remember right. about the city uh, in those days well i remember all that was still very active back then right in fact i mean the very first day i'm there i my my buddy david holman and i we had a cat i had my cat with me clyde we found a place in jersey right on the other side of the bridge to stay the first night because lo and behold there are no motels or hotels in brooklyn who knew <laughs> so except for the marriott in brooklyn heights uh, which was way out of our, you know, financial league at the time. And the very first night we were there, David and I, we go and pal up with these kids at McSorley's who take us around the city, get us drunk, give us a bunch of cocaine. And then we go up to score heroin uptown. And then when, when we went to get heroin, I come back and my buddy, David Holman had fallen down the stairs, cracked open his head. And then he had to go to uh, the, the ER so I think that our whole trip is over. We just got here. Everything is <laughs> fucked up. But I get to the hospital. I'm waiting around. I'm calling my friends in San Francisco saying, this shit's over. We're fucked. You know, and of course, I got drugs on me. And this cop's talking to me and everything. But I'm cool as a cucumber. David comes out with a bandaged head, grabs his jacket and says, let's get the fuck out of here. He grabs We The first thing we do is we go to a bar, tell him he was hit by a cab and had free drinks for the next hour. <laughs> that was nice. my first day in new york wow that's amazing <laughs> excellent use, yeah so that was that was a lot of fun so yes we, we we played hard we party hard david i will have to tell you did not do heroin or cocaine that was uh, <laughs> me and the boys so i cannot i cannot give him uh throw him under that bus because he did not but he you know we all know david was a big drinker you don't know that but my friends do well, Roger, you've made quite a name for yourself in the independent filmmaking world. And um, how did it come to be that that you made a, that you that you fell into that world? I mean, you have an incredible knowledge of film and um, and passion for it. And uh, how did you how how did how did you find your calling in that world? My dad took me to the movies religiously every Sunday, just like other kids would go to church. I went to the movies. My dad would pull me out of school just to go to the movies. My dad oh. was a movie nut. He loved movies. Uh, and then you know, if he got off of work early, you know, driving a truck because when I grew up as a little kid, he drove local. He didn't drive cross country until a little bit later, but he so he was a local driver, and sometimes he would just he would, things would be slow, and he'd go grab me out of school, and he didn't care what he took me to. It wasn't children's movies, I'll tell you that. <laughs> does he share he, an affinity for uh, Apocalypse Now? He does not. You know, he's <laughs> the one who took me to it. No, he he no, he appreciates the movie. But yeah. I remember walking down to the theater and I was the one who said I wanted to make movies and they thought I was crazy. You know, <laughs> uh, but that, that, that was the movie. They knew that I was going to say that at some point, but that it was weird that that was movie connected to a 10 year old more than it did to, you know, uh, 37 year olds. Hey, if I can just ask you a question, it's funny you brought that up, Pete, because um, that was going to be my second question or part of my second question. I know that Roger, uh, Apocalypse Now, a film about Vietnam, the Vietnam War, was uh, a very important film uh, that set you on your path and interest in films. I wanted to ask you, if you took away Apocalypse Now, um, two films that really come to mind that cover the um, Vietnam conflict were uh, Platoon, which starred Charlie Sheen. I think that was made in 1986. Mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> Full Metal Jacket, which came out, I think, a year later, starring Matthew Modine and... Uh, Stanley Kubrick directed it. Yeah. And um, before I ask you the question, I'll tell you a quick story about Vincent D'Onofrio. When I was dating my wife, she lives <laughs> in Midtown East, and uh, if you have an apartment in New York City and you want to go 
and buy a Christmas tree, all these Canadians will come down like right after Thanksgiving and they'll line the streets and they'll come down with their Christmas trees and, you know, they'll pedal them right off the side of the street, or at least that's what they were doing in the mid aughts, 2007, 2008. And we decide, we wake up one morning, we walk to, uh, I don't know, it might've been like second Avenue. And uh, who do I see fucking Vincent D'Onofrio shopping for a Christmas tree? And um, <laughs> this was my chance. I was like, hey, man, I could have asked him anything. And I said, hey, man, you know, I really appreciate what you do with the Salt and Sea with Val Kilmer. And he's like, oh, man, thanks. Thank you. You know, I could have I recited something out of Full Metal Jacket, but I didn't. And it was kind of a cool exchange. I don't know. I thought it was cool. Um, but getting back to my point, would you say Full Metal Jacket and Platoon are number two, number three? Where would you rate them in the Vietnam uh, motion picture category? You're also forgetting The Deer Hunter, which is also a great right. film. Uh, it kind of robs Apocalypse Now's Thunder the year later. The people were went to go towards uh, the Oscars, started picking movies that were family dramas, Kramer versus Kramer and Ordinary People beat Apocalypse Now and Raging Bull in a row kind of weird but as far as the pantheon of uh, vietnam war films you know i love platoon it's a good movie but it's not a great movie i mean full metal jacket is a is a masterpiece but i'm not you know platoon has a lot of really clunky dialogue and really heavy-footed themes you know born of the son the son of two fathers demonstrated by William Defoe and Tom Berenger. You know, for a grunt's eye view of the war, there's a little too much poetry in that movie for me. And, and there are other movies. I mean, the best war movie I think that's ever made besides, you know, Apocalypse Now is a personal favorite because what it did to me. I recognize, that's why it's always number two on my list. It never moves, but number one changes every day. My favorite movie of all time always changes. And there's a movie called Come and See, which is probably the most devastating World War II movie, uh, a war movie period you will ever see. It's from a Russian filmmaker. <clears throat> and it has over the years, from 1985, over the years has generated uh, a critical acclaim unlike I've ever seen Snowball all the way up into the top 20. That's a new that's movie that, coming out this year? No, it's from from 1985. Oh wow, I've that's never what I'm saying. That. that movie, it's it's right, but it's it's now starting. They got it. They just got a new print of it. It's on the Criterion Collection channel, and that's where I watched it not too long ago. It's it's an amazing piece of cinema. Anyway, um, quick question about war movies. As a, uh, since we're on the topic, um, of late, I would say 1917 was a pretty pretty incredible war movie. You and I watched that one together, buddy. Yeah, oh, that's right, we did. That we did. Yeah, yeah we kept right. stopping it, going, "How the fuck did they do that?" Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean that's that that movie was something else. And I also really like Dunkirk. I mean, I, I feel like say, I was going to bring up Dunkirk. Most people I talked to didn't enjoy that movie. I really did. I thought it was very well done. It's a it's a quality put together film. Christopher Nolan always is. You know, he's a consummate professional as a filmmaker. You know his biggest knock and you just either have to roll with it or don't is that he tends to be very cold and that movie just like everything else it's all about pieces putting together and you don't really feel you, the you feel the anxiety in the moment and it's cause and effect filmmaking style but what you don't feel is the gravity of the individual and and that's one of his biggest tenet he he goes so far as to even erase names he just makes everybody, uh, every single person is just a, is an avatar, no emotions necessary. That, that's how far he's gone into the criticism. He's rolled with it to even take out personality, a person's name out of the, out of the equation. It's kind so of I find John Kirk to do something that way. That's, I found it cold. I never, I, I hadn't thought of that. That's an interesting point. But now that you bring that up, I'm, I'm reminded of um, a scene with, is it Chillian Murphy? Is that the actor's name? Chillian Murphy? No, Killian Murphy. Killian Murphy. I'm we'll sorry. Um, well, one of us will get it right. <laughs> but he was, you're, you're right. It's a, a scene where he's brought onto a boat and he's being moved back into the war space because, because the boat's going back to rescue some folks. But 
the folks as they did, but th something that should have been extremely emotional really seemed to be kind of just n no, none of them had emotion because they were so focused on their task. But in a way, that's kind of impressive because there wasn't time for emotion in, in that moment. It's true. You know? No one has a tendency, though. I, I think he's afraid of being an adult human. I think he's he's an overgrown child with a really big brain who doesn't have time for compassion or emotion. And his films reflect that. And if you love that type of stuff, I have a filmmaker that I work with who that's his favorite filmmaker. And we've had arguments about it or conversations, I should say. And, you know, I respect his opinion. I don't denigrate Christopher Nolan. I can't yeah. do what he does. I cannot yeah. do that. Not my, not my cup of tea as far as a film producer goes, but uh, I will say I, I've always felt personally a little cold. Now I, I love John Luke Godard, who's cold, but he has a different agenda than uh, just telling a, a, a yarn. You know, he has a, a different filmmaking style, despite his cold. His is an examination of the world through the medium uh, itself. So he tends to be uh, like a scientist dissecting through art. Uh, uh, um, Raj, um you're, I could listen to you talk about film forever. We've had amazing conversations over the years. Um, as we are in the interest of getting to know the buzzards, um, I'd like to end with, if there's any kind of life philosophy or, or simple, you know, a dodge that you live by, or what, give us a little piece of your code, man. Just cause, you know, I think more people should be as open-minded and kind as you are. And I want to know what gets you, what, how do you bury the cynicism and how do you, uh, if there's anything, any, any little peek or anything you can give us to carry with us, because you seem to be that wise man that, that we all have in our life. I give everybody benefit of the doubt. I always try to, I, I believe in second chances quite a bit. I am not a, uh, you know, I can get rankly and as I get older, of course I get uh, cantankerous from time to time, but my love of people is always first. It's always there. I, you know, you, 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 you fuck up two times and then, you know, or three times and then it's over as far as the, not necessarily relationships wise, but I'm talking in a professional relationship wise. I always try to give somebody a second chance. I know a lot of people in this business who just want to crush heads as Veronica was telling me somebody that she had met who said that she wanted to do what Veronica do because she, so she can crush heads. And I know so many people that have this weird attitude <laughs> of thinking that a film producer is somebody who's just supposed to yell at people and fire people. And I, to me, my job in life is to help people. You know, my job as a film producer is that I am the curator of a vision and an art. And I have to make sure that at all costs that, we try to make that succeed, that vision to take care of it while helping and maintaining the care of everybody involved in that collaboration. And I believe that the collaboration is important. And everybody from the PA to the craft service to the director of photography are equally important on my sets. So I try to have that as my mantra. You know, I do not, you know, anybody can come up and ask me a question. I am not one of those people that locked door and you have to be afraid of everybody knows that it works with me oh yeah you know? so i'm very i'm very open and well you you're, know, a rare, you're a rare breed in that in that in that business but i do yes. feel maybe maybe there's a shift and uh it's, it's guys like you that have led the way and people can see the results of a happy crew and everyone leaves working with you positively and that's because you have that really good collaborative attitude and um, George, unless you got anything else, you know, we can wrap up uh, this session of Get to Know the Buzzards. Yeah, I just, uh, everything you guys said just now was, uh, I agree with. Um, Roger, I'd just like to wrap it up uh, the way I started. I know I made a little goof, goofy joke about the jam band situation, but I know that if I'm, unless I'm mistaken, you were on set for a video, was it for uh, Sean Lennon? Yeah. John, I Lennon, produced, John Lennon's son, right? He was. He has a band called Ghost of a Saber Tooth Tiger with his uh, girlfriend Charlotte Kemp Mole. 
and they are they have a it was a music video called Animals that directed by Rich Ragsdale. And we shot it at the Masonic Temple and at Zorthian Ranch. And yeah, I mean, it was the strangest thing was, you know, first he looks like his father, the way that he was uh, dressed up for the music video. That was on purpose to sort of evoke that era. It, but it wasn't really, it didn't really hit me with Sean Lennon until I was walking through the dressing room. And the, his phone rang and he goes, oh man, that's my mother. I can't answer that. And you had to stop and you had to think, fuck, his mother's Yoko Ono. <laughs> well, that, that, that kind of hits you for a loop. <laughs> right. That's great. But the jam band piece that um, I want to uh, acknowledge, is that the same set that uh, John Perry Barlow, who is essentially an unbilled member of the Grateful Dead, was on set? I think oh yes, that's and, right. Uh, he offered me LSD. Yes. Yeah, I was just wondering if we could close it out with that conversation because you know you were, knew you grew up uh, primarily as a punk rocker. You didn't really have too much interest in the jam band space. But what was that conversation like? Because unfortunately, uh, Barlow just passed away not too recently, and uh, you're one of the only people. I think you're the only person I know that's ever met him. So uh, if you could share that story, I think that might be a nice way to close. They out. were shooting inside the Masonic Temple. He was there that day and was a favorite to Sean Lennon because they were friends. And we were just sitting out near Crafty where we were going to have lunch later. And I was my job. You know, they were shooting, so I didn't have to be in there at that time. I did my job getting everything there. So we were just sitting there drinking a soda or whatever. And he got up and he goes, people underestimate you, don't they? I go, what? He goes, I bet you people underestimate you all the time, but I got you figured out. I've been watching you. So we sat down and we started talking and, you know, he unfurled his entire backstory. I didn't know who he was at the time. And, you know, he told me about his relationship with the Grateful Dead and growing up with uh, Bob Weir and how he was, uh, he ran as a Republican for uh, a, a seat somewhere. I, I can't remember if it was for the Senate or as a congressman. He wrote some of the lyrics for the Grateful Dead. You know, it, he had a fascinating story. He always had LSD on him to offer to somebody who was willing to try. He offered me some and I said, well, I'm working right now, maybe later. Uh, but he was we had a, about a, I'd say a three hour conversation and I, we just found each other fascinating. I told him my life story. He told me his and say la vie. That's, that's excellent. <laughs> well, I think that seems like a natural place to end it. Uh, we will be right back and we have something special tonight for everyone. We have a caller from the great state of Colorado uh, Tom joins us. What's on your mind, Tom? Where are you right now in Colorado? Good evening, gentlemen. I'm calling in from Vail, Colorado, uh, just south of the Eagle's Nest in Vail. Um, got up here this afternoon. It's 60 degrees and sunny, blue skies. Going to be beautiful skiing tomorrow at Be uh, Breckenridge. Sunday, I'll be over at Beaver Creek if anybody wants to hit me up. I don't know when how, this is going to air. How far is how far is Vail to Breckenridge? What's the drive like? Uh, Vail to Breck is probably 20 minutes down. Yeah, that's it? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Vail to Beaver Creek is like 15. You know, oh my less. God, that's dude. So, yeah, that's perfect. Excellent. So, the, the size 70 quarter. They'll have that amazing pancake house. I remember as a kid in the late 70s when I went to Breckenridge, it was this great pancake house that was legendary. I wonder if it's... you're not talking about the claim jumper, are you? No, not the claim jumper. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've been to Breckenridge for the last probably dozen years and i don't recall pancake <laughs> i love pancakes well, if you find it i'm gonna look it up yeah. breck is breckenridge is a fun town though I've, I've i did a ski vacation there one time it was really nice great very cool town yeah. yeah great mountain you got a varying terrain trees groomers above yeah. the tree line hike to terrain it's one of my favorite places in colorado yeah it's amazing so Tom, what what what, what See, brings you to this to the program today? You know, um, as an avid religious listener to FD, uh, what, FDB, um, I had a lot of memories uh, spark up, so to speak, um, and I was really interested in talking about live music, talking about concert experiences, and a place that we may have frequented in our day. 
a place where there's a different set of norms, cultural norms, a place where there is no sales tax, a place called the lot, the pre-show hangout spot. <laughs> Shakedown Street. Shakedown Street, baby, you know it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of what I want to talk about. I, I basically was thinking about some of the better shows that I've been to, the, the diversity of music that we all listen to, kind of talking about the, the being inspired by the Amigo story and um, just the inspiration of, of how music comes across differently at different times of life and, and we in, embrace it in different ways. Well, that's interesting. It's an interesting topic to jump off with. I mean, instantly I'm reminded of, you know, I feel like I don't know if kids have the same experience as we did. I mean, you know, we're all Gen Xers here, but uh, there was nothing like being young and going to a concert and seeing what was going on, or walking up to the gate, you know, but you had to get through that parking lot to see. And and it was just so incredible, you, you know, to, to see all of the action going on and, and everything happening. And I don't know if kids have that same experience because but it was certainly a really great and fun part of it and i most recent my one of my most recent experiences in that situation was um actually with george remember when we went to see the uh, dead and company at city field mm -hmm. and it was their first night it was tom our friend tom glasgow and dan cohen and uh, george and myself and uh it was we got there early just to walk through it because i mean not like you know we're, we're we're a lot more mellow in our older age but just to walk through and see all the glass being so sold and all the and all the t-shirts homemade t-shirts and all the different swag that's going around and uh, and everything and we go in and the first song they kick it off with the shakedown street and the place went obviously really great because it was uh it was one of those special parking lot scenes you know yeah Absolutely. But Roger, I would imagine, has a different experience. He's not so much into uh, the jam band scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, growing up in Southern California, it was a lot easier and access to a lot of bands, and it was in heavy rotation. And I didn't, you know, the big concerts I could give a shit about. I, I saw, you know, Ted Nugent, Leonard Skinner, Elton John, Ario Speedwagon, and Fleetwood Mac, the Beach Boys, all when I was a kid with my parents. But it was really when I was able to go off on my own and see Black Flag or go see the Minutemen or, you know, what, who, who's could do, whoever was playing at that time in some small shitty venue where you could see the pe uh, paint peeling off the wall. That was my kind of experience. And that was a group experience with a bunch of young people and enjoying and beating the shit out of each other and jumping on top of each other. It was, it was quite an extraordinary fun time. And especially in the mid to late eighties, and seeing the development of bands like Jane's Addiction playing backyards, you know, being the band that opened up for, you know, one day it was, I mean, one day and one, there was, they opened up for three bands in one week. It was Love and Rockets, The Replacements, and Jesus and Mary Chain. All three different venues, but they were the opening band for all three acts. And being, being here, I mean, that was what it was. It was, we would go, we would go so often to see shows. It was, by the time we were had money in our pocket, it was probably four or five times a week. Well, you know, uh, one question that it does it does get me going on is, what was your first concert without your parents? Let's go around the horn, George. What was your first concert with friends, or without without any kind of parental guidance? Uh Without parents, I know the first <laughs> the first show I ever saw with parents or any live concert I ever saw was the the band the Monkeys. <laughs> and I think they were on the hey, with the Monkeys. Uh, yeah, it was the Monkeys, Herman's Hermits, and I want to say like uh, there was another some nostalgia band there. I think the first concert I went to by myself with friends uh i was probably in high school maybe probably like 11th grade and it was a show put on by this top 40 station called z100 which was probably it probably still is the biggest top 40 terrestrial radio station in new york city and it was duran duran the cranberries new kids on the uh, block i want to say that no <laughs> the jesus lizard was there and maybe the band Sponge. It was just a, a weird lineup. Of, it was, 
Yeah, it was probably some record company showcase. And Duran Duran, they obviously had their heyday in the early 80s. But if you remember, in the mid early mid-90s, they did make a comeback and they did have some pretty good songs. And I thought that was pretty cool to see Duran Duran. That's the first concert I remember seeing without parents. Uh, not the most exciting show, you know, relatively speaking, but uh you know, for me, it was different, you know, like when you talk about the, the parking lot scene, because, you know, I grew up out in Long Island and we, when we would go see shows, it was either Madison Square Garden or like Roseland or some yeah. club in New York City. So we just rode the train. It was like you got on the train, you drank as much as you could. And then all of a sudden you're on the streets of Manhattan. So it was a real it, it was different for us. I, you know, I didn't really walk through a parking lot till later in life when I was seeing shows in other cities or other towns. But uh, yeah, that was, I think that was the first concert I saw. Madison Square Garden is always an awesome experience though. Just, just getting, as you get, as you approach, you know, the, the, the people just, it just gets, it just grows and grows and grows as, as you go in. I mean, that, I think that's why it's one of the best places to see a big show. Um, Roger, what was yours? I, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. I do Tom? not. I have no I have no idea what it was. <laughs> Tom, do you know yours? Yeah, I do. Uh, first proper concert that I remember being there with just friends was the Rolling Stones in the, the Carrier wow. Dome. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. So we had, yeah, it was it was cool. I was not ready. Uh, <laughs> I still recall uh, the giant video screen behind the band. And the song Honky Tonk Woman came on. And I, I don't think I ever understood what the lyrics actually meant to Honky Tonk Woman. But uh, <laughs> visually, I made that connection quite quickly. Um, yeah, this was probably 95 or 96. And it was probably the Voodoo Lounge. Yeah. And um, Mick still had it, man. He was bebopping around. I remember my dad being like, oh, I'm just as old as Mick Jagger. Like, you know. And I saw Mick on stage and I was like, wow. And he was just, the energy was insane. And um, I loved it. I loved it. Um, yeah, it was me and some high school friends. We, we got dropped off by the parents, got picked up by the parents, but it was a sick show. It was cool. Nice. <laughs> Eye opener. <laughs> Mine, mine's a little embarrassing. I, I, um, I, I told my dad I was staying over at my friend Jason's house and we drove down to Saratoga Performing Arts Center, SPAC, affectionately known as. And uh, we we got we went to Steve Miller Band. <laughs> yeah, that's not too embarrassing. That's not that terrible. And we drove back. I remember, I, and I drove back and, and everything happened. It was great. I had like three beers. I mean, I was like 16 or 15 maybe even. But What that was, was the drive like? Just, How long was that drive? It was, it's only like two and a, it was like two and a half hours probably from Plattsburgh, but I, there wasn't a seat for me. So I was in the back bed of this, like a Bronco style vehicle the whole way there. Didn't care at all. Didn't care on the way back, just going to a concert. I was so nervous and excited to, you know, to pull it off at the yeah. time. I mean, I, I lived with a heavy metal band at 13, 14 years of age. So when I moved back from Colorado Springs to Southern California. So it's like, I was surrounded by music. I had, I was beaten up by Nikki Six at that age from Motley Crue. How'd that uh, I'd knocked over his motorcycle drunk, and he oh, didn't care for man. that. So he picked me up by my ankles and pounded my head into the ground. Wow! Uh, I, I've always hated Motley Crue. I mean, I hate hair farmer shit music in the first place, but you know, <laughs> I really, I really hate that band with all of my heart. Um, are they like? Are they like the Eagles of metal? <laughs> yeah. That's right. In two bands I can't stand. The Eagles or, you know, fucking Motley Crue. Excellent. What else, Tom? You know what's what else, funny? Uh, just, uh, if we're talking about musical first, the first cassette tape I ever bought uh, with my own, uh, you know, without being supervised, yeah. you know, you know, hey, go buy whatever you want. I selected Motley Crue's Theater. Yeah, there you go. Which had, I've uh, got a really embarrassing had, one for this. Roger, it had the blistering cover of Smoking in the Boys. <laughs> and uh, they had they had their uh, ballad of the day with Tommy Lee uh, playing Tickling the Keyboard. 
uh, Home Sweet Home, which I don't think is a terrible song, but the rest of that album, I, you know what? I shouldn't say that. I listened to it not that long ago. And, and you I, loved it. A lot of people don't like I, I get what you're saying about Motley Crue. Tommy Lee is a really good drummer, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, it's not their finest work. It's definitely not the finest uh, recording uh, as time has gone by. But, you know, I feel like I could have done a lot worse. Lots of... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, give me give me the Stooges or give me death is all I gotta say. I'll take a I'll take a million Iggy Pops over. Anyway, go ahead, Pete. No, I was just gonna say embarrassingly that uh, I think the first music I ever purchased with my own money was "Every Rose Has Its Thorn" by Poison. <laughs> there you go. Cassette tape, Pete. Oh yeah, cassette tape. There was a, there was a B side. Never even listened to it. Just played that one. You know. <laughs> Went to Those a place, guys got a lot of mileage out of that. Went song. to a place called Sears and bought the single on cassette. Not the not the album. The single. It was probably like two ninety nine. Awesome. You know. First thing I bought was an eight track of Queen's News of the World. Great record. Nice. Nice. That's a good That's one. We Will Rock You and yeah. uh, We Are the Champions. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's all it's, you know, it was nineteen seventy what, seven, seventy-eight. I had, a, I had an eight-track cassette player or eight-track player, and that was the first one I bought with my own money. Tom, do you remember your first selection? Pearl Jam, ten tape. That was actually a gift from my older sister. That's awesome. I, yeah, I have such a fond memory of that album, skiing White Face Mountain as a kid. And when that album came out, they would blast it all over the whole mountain. So nothing like that album in the snow. You know, as you're skiing in the, in the '90s at the time was awesome. I can't picture that album as a cassette i only picture it as a cd i remember uh when that record first came out like it was in the locker room this one dude had a beatbox and that was the only thing he played was pro jam 10 <laughs> and if you remember the like the intro to the record was just like this slow build up of percussion and like the bass and i just yeah i remember that but uh I have a hard time picturing it as a tape, but I guess that, you know, tapes hadn't gone away yet. And what, that must've been like 91, 92, I want to say. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's 1992. Yeah. Um, Roger, what do you remember about Pearl Jam? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that we were listening to uh, super fuzz big muff by mud honey way more than we were listening to Pearl Jam. All right. So yeah. Yeah, hey, one of the best concerts I ever went to, though, I saw the very first show the Smiths ever had in the, in the United States. So oh, that's awesome. I was at the Palladium in Los Angeles, and we they were played two nights, and we went both nights. That was pretty exciting. And the first time Nirvana played in Los Angeles, saw that show when they opened up for Sonic Youth, also at the Palladium. Wow, that's a cool show. That's sick too. Yeah. Bleach hadn't even come out yet. Was Grohl in the band at that point, or not? Yet? Grohl was. He was. He was just in the band. They had already recorded Bleach. It hadn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. By the time Bleach was done, Grohl was already in the band. He's just not on the record. Tom, what else is on your mind tonight? Anything else you can think of? You know, I don't know. I was, if we're, I'm still on the music kick. I was thinking of um, <clears throat> some of the experiences I had at some of these shows that I was not expecting. One memorable experience was the wall by roger waters saw it in buffalo new york with our friend john cervoni wow um i saw the, that same one by the way with danny cohen in new york yeah he, a couple days took before. me to it a couple days prior that yeah. actually was phenomenal, a phenomenal it was pretty experience. sick right like yeah. they built yeah. the wall through the beginning of the show there's pigs yeah. on the wings there's yeah it yeah. was tremendous it was it, it was, was tremendous it was a performance right yeah um i remember um I went to see Sia in Boston, the Boston Garden and uh, the TD Garden. My buddy sourced the tickets. It was me, he was working. Um, so I'm there with my girlfriend at the time. Don't know a thing about Sia except for like one song. It's me, it's my girlfriend, it's, you know, mothers and 12 year old daughters. And uh, it was at the time, I forget what the album was, where she had the wig that covers her eyes, the yeah. blonde wig. Just chandelier album chandelier exactly and i probably thought i knew two songs but it turns out i knew like eight you know 
And that to that experience was Sia standing on a pedestal, singing her heart out. And at that time there was the 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 young the young lady that was styled to look like a young Sia who was interpretive dancing. Maddie Ziegler is yeah. her name. Uh, I, I have to say, um, I've met Sia a few times through my work, and she's a ex, she's an incredible artist and an excellent human being. And a, a, a lot of people don't know, but she did the final song in the show Six Feet Under called Breathe Me. Excellent piano song. That's the first time I had ever heard of her. So then it was years later, she was coming up with these pop songs, but she, she's an incredible artist. I would, I would absolutely agree. I, I remember I went home that night and I fell asleep on her Wikipedia page. And I was just so enthralled with her history, her dedication to the craft and her, her unwilling drive to succeed. And lo long story short, she tried to make it as a singer for 10 years in London and Australia, wasn't happening, wasn't happening. And she goes, you know what? I'm, I'm having success producing and writing. Like I'm gonna give up on the singing thing. She writes this song, Beyonce is in the studio. She's working with Beyonce, Beyonce. Beyonce's like, I just can't get this song. I just can't sing it. How do you sing it? And Sia steps in the booth and just crushes it. And Beyonce's like, it's your song. And that at that moment is when her pop- I, I her didn't pop know that. Song. Yeah, exactly. and it just like, it had been like 20 years of her essentially giving up on her dream or, or changing direction of what her dream could be and her reality would be. And it just like, I don't know, it still gives me chills just thinking about it, about, you know, your reality and your dream and your hustle and your grind and your craft and, and your dedication. It's, it still gets me fired up. It's also proof. I mean, Roger and I've had this conversation ongoing for a long time, like what defines an artist, but an artist needs to create like, you know, people walk around need oxygen to, to breathe. You know, and that's proof of, proof of it, whether it means you're going to enjoy success or not. I mean, Larry David, I think he sold Seinfeld when he was in his 40s. And now he's Larry David, you know, so it doesn't a time, the timeline. It doesn't really matter. I think it's you keep at it. You, you got to keep at your craft. And yeah. You got to keep at the thing. That really if you say you're a painter, I got to see paint all over your clothes and it better be on the side of your mouth, too. Yeah, if you're a writer, absolutely. you better have, better have ink stains on your hands, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Or a carpal tunnel <laughs> yeah. these days. That's awesome. That was that's an awesome uh, anecdote. Uh, you know, on I'm it's surprising that you'd go to see see a concert, but the takeaway from that is really excellent. I think a lot of people can uh, can relate to having a, a weird but enlightening musical experience like that. Well, yeah, I was sober as well. It was amazing. I just right. the hair was blown back. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. George, George told me that uh, I drove across the country with George in 1999. He told me the same story, but with new kids on the block. You could have, they were basically the same exact story, except you take out Sia and you put in new kids on the block. And he said, blew his hair back sober. He was like 16. It was crazy. Hanging tough. Hanging like new tough. Kids. <laughs> I, dude, you know what? New kids, they were huge. When I, I remember, like, I don't know, it was like in sixth grade. Like those guys, uh, they, Roger, they couldn't do anything wrong. Uh, yeah. but I just, you know, <laughs> I'm, honestly, I gotta be honest. I was not, I was not fortunate enough to see new kids and I would admit it if I did, I just, you know, I think, a, you know, you probably could have found a lot of, as a young man looking to uh, meet girls, <laughs> Uh, new kids on the block show was probably the best place you could go. But, uh, but I don't know. I would dispute that. I would dispute Let that because <laughs> all those girls are looking at the five guys on stage. If you don't look like one of those guys, you're out of luck. Actually, dude, the funny thing is, a lot of folk, a lot of girls back in those days uh, thought I was a Joey McIntyre doppelganger. <laughs> I had the curly hair, I had the blue eyes, and he was like a younger okay. uh, guy in the band. So I did kind of resemble him. So I remembered. Ooh getting a little mileage out of that and uh, appreciate what he was doing. Uh, I don't know what songs he wrote. I don't know what instruments he played, but I know he was a new kid and he was. But let, Christ, but think but, think uh, about it this way though. Think about, think about this though. Now new kids on the block and that kind of success. Do you think that that band was the blueprint for the, for the boy band or does it even go back as far as like the Beatles being the blueprint for the boy band and that kind of wild success? that would uh that would happen well 
that's a good question, but I would argue there's one was one was organic and one was manufactured. And the idea of the boy band goes back to Menudo, really, was the first original true blue. Menudo long, predates long. the new kids on the block. I would, oh, yeah, I don't 100, 100%. That's not a Menudo poster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any Menudo posters. You know, Eric Levandusky, who was on episode one, uh, he and I had a short lived uh, band in college, and one of the working titles was We're a Lot Less Drunker Than Menudo. <laughs> That was not selected, uh, but I do, you know, Tom, when you were talking about uh, concert experiences, I wrote a few down. I'll, you know, I've been to so many, you know, my first concert wasn't that a, uh, meaningful, I guess, but uh, I've been to so many concerts ever since uh, that fateful Duran Duran show. Uh, just, I, I just wrote a few down. I went to see Wu-Tang play with Rage Against the Machine in Camden, oh, New Jersey. That's, a, that's a great one for the resume. I mean, I wish, I wish, yeah, I only dude. wish I could have seen those. Rage was really uh, everywhere that summer. Their song Bulls on Parade was playing like every 30 seconds. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. And they decided to go on the road with Wu-Tang. And we went to this venue and it was like half indoor, half outdoor. I guess it was kind of like an amphitheater. But uh, I remember when Wu-Tang came on, everyone kind of ran towards the front of the stage. I jumped over like this divider. And this um, security guard grabbed my leg and like pulled my shoe off. So like for the entire show, I'm barefoot on one foot and I had a sneaker on. And I remember at the end, I jumped on the stage and I wound up meeting Ghostface Killer. And I'm like, yo, man, came all the way from Long Island to see you guys. He's like, yo, what's up? So that was cool to see him. And then we saw Rage play. And had to walk out of the venue, which had like a broken rock gravel drive. You know, the whole parking lot was gravel rock. So I had one one shoe had one shoe and and one foot was barefoot. So that was really painful, and no one felt bad for me. <laughs> uh, I had to walk the whole way back to the car barefoot. Uh, I remember another show I saw was Chris Cornell playing. I think it was the Beacon Theater in New York City. I went with uh, our friend Danny Cohen, who was in episode two. Uh, we were like two rows from the front and he played a couple songs and like things quieted down and he was kind of interact with the crowd. And I requested he play this song, uh, Fresh Tendrils. So I'm like, hey, Fresh Tendrils. He's like, I can't play that. You know, it's like, it's too hard. I I'm only one guitarist. So kind of had this cool interaction with him. I thought it was cool. Um, Two, two more quick ones, and I'll kick it over to Roger or Pete, but uh, our friend John Stewart, was, who's really into the hardcore scene, we, I went with him to see a few bands at CBGB's when it was still open, and I don't I want to say it was like the Cro-Mags or like Agnostic Front, some really well-respected hardcore band, and Stewart knew those guys, so we're kind of standing on the side of the stage at CBGB's, it was kind of cool, and standing right next to me was MCA, from the Beastie Boys, because MCA grew up uh, playing before he was in the Beastie Boys, played in his hardcore band as a bass player, and he played the bass for the Beastie Boys. The original iteration of the Beastie Boys was a hardcore punk band. Yeah, so MCA just jumps on stage. He's just standing there with his wife. Like the guy was like so chilled out relative to everyone else that was there. He just strapped on the bass. His wife was like, oh shit, really? We gotta go down and see your old fucking high school buddies or your old buddies. He just strapped on the bass, just jumped in, played like two songs, took off the bass and just walked out. It was pretty awesome. That's a pretty cool experience. Yeah, and you know, Stuart probably remembers that a little bit better than I do. But, uh, and then the last one was, I saw Guns N' Roses play at Madison Square Garden, but it was when Axl Rose was playing with like Buckethead and mm -hmm. a bunch of guys that had been in Nine Inch Nails. I was with you at that show. Yeah, there was no, it was just Axl Rose and he, and Tommy Stinson from The Replacements yeah, was on Tommy bass. Tommy Stinson was there. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It was a bunch of non-original members, and it was the first time Guns N' Roses or Axl Rose had played in, like I want to say, at least 10 years. And another time, I found myself in like the back of the stage, and it was like this catered area of Madison Square Garden. I don't know how I even got there. I think I was definitely drinking way too much. I wandered down some hallway. I'm in this catered area. And all of a sudden, Axl Rose walks in at one point with, he was wearing like a Mark Messier jersey, smoking a cigar. He had braids in his hair. 
he looked like he was on like some heavy weightlifting program. He might've been taking like the Mark McGuire supplements or I just, I couldn't believe how big he was. He was like very, like, he looked like a weightlifter. That was a short lived experiment with Buckethead, wasn't it? What did, was that only the one tour they did that? I think so. I think that was it. I think Buckethead played with Guns N' Roses for a while. I think there's a lot of uh, unreleased material. But uh, yeah, I got to meet Axl Rose, so that was cool. He plays guitar in that Chinese Democracy album. Yeah, he does. Oh, I didn't know that. Which I think is a really good album. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys, if Roger and uh, Pete, you must have some cool stories. Concert experiences? Uh, You know what? I I just thought of one after... uh... You mentioned Chris Cornell. It's one of my favorite. Is uh, my buddy Ron Falica got he wanted to go see uh, Audio Slave and um, Incubus. I I don't I couldn't tell you one Incubus song, but he was more interested in seeing Incubus and they were opening for Audio Slave. And I was like, well, I'd absolutely love to see Audio Slave. And um, is at Jones Beach, and that it was not just I think it was that very summer that Jones Beach being a state park decided to not serve alcohol anymore. So we, yeah. we went out there completely unprepared and there's no alcohol, but there was this like VIP tent serving alcohol. So I, I go, I go into my wall, I got $55 and I go and I give it to the guy that's guarding the thing. And he, he lets us both in there and we start drinking uh, wine on the house, you know, drinking a bunch of wine. Incubus starts playing and I'm, and I just tell Ronnie, go ahead. I'll see you at the seats. I wanna, I'll just hang here by the water, you know, and, uh, and keep drinking stay there the whole time incubus is finishes up i walk out to our seats which are right there there's the there's like the pit area and then there's a, a runway kind of and then there's the the tiers that go up we are the front row of that tier awesome seats actually right in the center so audio slave starts up and and it's just it's amazing chris cornell comes running he leaves the stage he comes running down this thing and he's coming right in front of right he's going to be coming right in front of me I step out into the aisle and I clotheslined him. He's got no shirt on and I, and, and I, and I, and I, and he pulls back and he looks at me and he just pulls me in and gives me this big sweaty wet hug and he throws me off of him and he keeps going. It was honestly one of the most amazing experiences. Ronnie, he'll, anytime I see him or talk to him since he's like, dude, do you remember that Chris Cornell? Like, yes. I remember that Chris Cornell story. It's one of the most epic things that ever happened i i uh absolutely loved that guy's voice i absolutely yeah. loved a lot everything that that he did but enough about that what do you say raj any uh, concert experiences you want to share my, my favorite concert the best the best i mean you know i've seen sonic youth probably as much as you guys seen grateful dead but the best single individual show i've ever seen was uh when firehose opened up for the butthole surfers ucla that was probably the most cacophonous, wild orgy of uh, mayhem, violence, and drug abuse I've ever witnessed, <laughs> not just on stage, but it's in the audience as well. And that was, it was an orgy of, I mean, it was dangerous. It That's was, really was weird old. because George said that very same thing about a Rusted Root concert. <laughs> God, it's crazy. The same words, cacophony, drug use, hardcore. It was a lot of fun, I tell you. I mean, it was dangerous. Uh, I've seen, you know, I, I watching my cousin at, at um, Coachella uh, standing next to Bob Mould from Who's Do and Chuck D from Public Enemy side stage watching my cousin play with the band no age was uh that was a special moment for me personally but you know i've been on the stage as many before i i I got up one time and uh during the encore of uh sonic youth show at the roxy they were singing i want to be your dog they used to close out the show with stooges song and at the time it was uh, the two kids from red cross mark arm from mud honey and sonic youth were on stage doing a rip roaring version of it and i grabbed the microphone and started singing up there for a whole two minutes oh before, wow. and it was lee ronaldo it was lee ronaldo's microphone he turned around and instead of having somebody throw he, he laughed instead of having somebody throw me off i just you know stage dived but that was a lot <laughs> but we did that all the time i mean it's like as far as that being spectacular there was always i can't really think of one exciting thing other than just 
somebody having a bad acid trip, you know, like during watching Skinny Puppy with a band called The Drowning Pool. That was not a good experience on LSD. <laughs> I saw Pearl Jam in Prague once, and this will be real quick, but I, I was made on the floor with my buddy Kevin, and I, and it was so packed and I was so tight that I just wanted to get out of there. And the only way to get out was to like get up, crowd surf, and be tossed over the front in between so i said fuck it i can't take it anymore i live i hoisted myself up and i and, and people pushed me i was like probably five six rows back i get flopped over the fence the best thing ever the the security has brought me to this little area side stage there was wine water snacks chill out watch the rest of the concert right there i i i was like why didn't i think of this forever ago it was actually one of the most cool the coolest fucking things that ever happened now that i think about it, it was amazing so thanks, Tom. That was really cool to uh, relive a couple of those uh, experiences, man. Yeah, you bet. You bet. One of the last one, real quick one. Um, one of the most like intimate, close to the band experiences I had was uh, Killington, Vermont, December 6th, 2008, with a band known as Candlebox. Wow. <laughs> and uh, me and three other, four, three other guys are up for a ski weekend. We're bombing around. There's one place in Killington that has live music. It's called the Pickle Barrel. Yeah. Rectangular bar, like it's kind of like you know, balcony. It's like seating. a go-to spot in Killington. It's right? a spot. Yeah. Yeah. So the band set up. We're on the second level looking down and the energy that the lead singer Kevin Martin put out was just amazing. It was just something like I was just drawn to it. I was gassed up. I chased him down afterwards. I was like, I just want to say that was amazing. The energy was sick. You brought it, uh, like, say what you want about Candlebox, but it was, it was like. Was there, a, was there a song Shine? No, dude. No. <laughs> Far behind. Man. Oh, that's right. Come on, man. <laughs> but the, like, the, there's some real, like the song You, Y-O-U, yeah. yeah. there, there's some depth there. And um, I remember I was like reading into like the meaning and the lyrics and, and what he was going through and his writing after the fact. But um caught up with him, chatted with him for like an hour, had a beer with him. And he was so humble, so friendly, so kind. Um, That's cool. And the like that experience that, was so cool for me. The thing about Candlebox, uh, which I, I, I don't mind those guys, but they're a Seattle band and they were a contemporary of, you're talking about Nirvana, uh, Chris Cornell, and that song Far Behind is actually about uh, the singer from Mother Love Bone, Andrew Wood, who died and two members of Pearl Jam were in Mother Love Bone, and he was just like this, uh, you know, I think he was supposed to be like the largest star in that universe of all these like really talented musicians. He was, yeah. Yeah, Andrew Wood. And uh, I mm -hmm. think that song Far Behind is about Andrew Woods because I think all those guys are like buddies and they work together and they played shows and, you know, they played, were in and out of each other's bands. But uh, yeah, that, that yeah. was a tight scene. I mean, Pearl Jam is the synthesis of Green River and Mother Love Bone. Mm hmm and then the rest of them joined, made mud honey. It's funny how they could be completely polar opposites deep down when they when they had their own super bands, so to speak. Uh -huh. Even though they come from the same roots. Uh, Tom, we really appreciate you taking the time. We appreciate you calling in. We've done, uh, you know, Pete. What would you say? That was that's a decent amount of time. I'd like to have. Oh yeah, that's great, man. That was that was that was excellent, man. It's also great to hear your voice and see you, bud. Yeah, man, we'd like to have it. you back on. Uh, Invite that man back. Yeah. Come back with some more questions. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know what? You know what else, Tom? We're gonna do is um, I, I I'm I'm sure you do, the guys will agree. Um, when we do these types of episodes, we we t we're gonna we put out a Spotify playlist based on the music that we were discussing. So it's kind of cool that you came in with some music conversation because it gives us an opportunity to put a really cool little eclectic uh, playlist out there for everybody to listen to. Awesome. I'm happy to be here. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'll send you the picture of me and Kevin Martin from 2008. Oh my God, that would yes. be excellent, dude. That would I'm really fanned out. Nice. You can see me fanned out. Yeah, dude. You can have Candlebox, Sia, and Butthole Surfers in the same line. <laughs> what a playlist. Yes. Live awesome. at the Pickle Barrel. <laughs> thanks much, guys. I appreciate it. Hey, man, you, enjoy man. the powder tomorrow out there in Vail and uh, you guys in L.A. Please stay safe. And uh, guys, as always, make sure you um, open the door slowly. I'm going to just tap on the citrus and uh, <laughs> you know, we'll see you next time.
Thank you. Lips up. Yeah. Bye.